Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Today, I want to talk about James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26, and how to make your faith useful. This is a controversial passage, um, and you can read about it and some of the resources I have out there. Uh, this message will probably be on a podcast later called Simply by Grace that's um, gotten a lot of downloads, and uh, there's some of our contact information. In James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, there's often a bit of confusion about this passage, and it is often misused. Uh, I really believe the passage is talking about how to make your faith useful. But the way many people understand it is quite different. It, they understand it as how to prove that you're saved. And there's a big difference in how we use the passage. When I was a teenager, I had a friend, and uh, we hung our, out a, a lot together. And he had a 55 Chevy. And he kept talking about it. They parked it in front of his house. And he kept talking about that, how this 55 Chevy was going to be so awesome when he put it together. It was going to have, you know, eight, 18 cylinders and 20 thousand horsepower and nine carburetors or whatever and um and we were just going to go cruising around and impress all the the girls and and it was going to be cool and uh we waited and nothing happened and we waited nothing happened we kept talking about it nothing happened later in my later teenage years we kind of drifted apart and i eventually heard that he sold the car and all our dreams of impressing the girls were gone he talked a big game but nothing ever happened out of it now, in Texas, they say he's all hat and no cattle. Somebody that says a lot, but doesn't really come through in his actions. Let's follow a, a family from church on a typical Sunday, and they've heard a good message. They've gone to Sunday school and church, and their children have enjoyed their church. And and the, the husband, you know, says, hey, I was baptized since I was 12. I've been going to church since I was 12. Every Sunday I'm there, and my family is there. And the wife says, I go to three Bible studies a week and um, listen to the radio all the time and Christian stations. And, and so they go to lunch after church and and they find out that by talking to the waitress, they share a little bit about that. They just came from church. Yeah, they love the church. It's vibrant and, and so forth. And they find out from the waitress. Well, how about you? Well, she says, my husband was knocked out of work because of the covid disease and and. Um, I have to support four children, and my work has been cut back quite a bit because of the restaurant business is limiting uh, their capacity, and and the people just don't want to come. Some people just don't want to come, and uh, we're really struggling right now. And so dinner is over, and the husband says, you know what? Let's leave her a track. And so he puts a track out on the table along with a dollar bill. Quite a big separation from who he says he is, and how he talks about his Christian faith and his actions that really don't help this poor mother of four. There can be sometimes a big separation between how we speak and how we act, and that's what James is talking about. And it's a troublesome uh, passage for many because it's so misunderstood. It says some things that are disturbing, like in verse 17, it says faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
And so some people have misunderstood that to say that if you don't have if you don't have works, you can't prove that you have faith. And if you don't have works, it proves that you're not a Christian. And so it has caused many people to look inwardly to say, do I have enough works? And they live in doubt and fear constantly, not knowing if they have enough works to prove that they're a Christian. There's a saying that they often use, which goes something like this. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. As far as we know, we've been able to trace it back to Martin Luther, who said that. But we're saved by faith alone, but yet the faith that saves is never alone. It seems a bit contradictory to me. I never could figure out exactly how that works. You're either saved by faith alone or not. So some people say when James says there's a you're justified by works, they see a contradiction with the Apostle Paul, who wrote so clearly in the book of Romans, explaining the gospel in chapter 3 and 4 especially, that you're justified by faith alone. In Christ alone, justified, declared righteous in God's sight, not by anything we do, but by faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done. If the message is so clear in the book of Romans and Paul's writing and James comes along and says, no, you're justified by works and not by faith alone. And some people just say, well, he's contradicting Paul. And they try to explain it in certain ways. I don't think too successfully. In fact, Martin Luther finally just gave up and said, you know, James is an epistle of straw. It shouldn't be in the New Testament. Did you know he said that? He's called it an epistle of straw and said it should not be in the Bible. You know, whenever we study a troublesome text like this, one that's hard to understand, it always helps to look at the context. And so we, before we dive into the passage, I want to kind of circle a few times and, and get, get a view of the landscape, okay? And that means the context and some of the important words and, and uh, around this passage. And the first question to ask and answer sometimes in Bible study is, who's who's the author addressing? Who are the readers? That's a very important question when we look at this passage. And the first thing that we have to see is that they're believers. They're called brothers 19 times in the passage, holy brothers 11 of those times. And that's more than any any amount of times in the New Testament other than in 1 Corinthians. So James is not questioning their salvation at all. Brothers, holy brothers, it says it in the passage. He calls them brothers in the passage we're looking at today in verse 14. He's not questioning their salvation, and that's not the purpose of his writing. They do have a problem, though, and he seems to point that problem out in chapter 4 most clearly when he calls them adulterers and adulteresses because he says you love the world, and that's the reason for your fighting and quarreling because you, you want things. You ask God, and you want it to spend it on yourself. So they had a very selfish and worldly uh perspective on life. And that's why he tells them in chapter one uh, that you should be doers of the word and not hearers only. Uh, he wanted them to speak, not just speak about their faith, but to practice their faith. And so in chapter one, verse 21, he talks about being doers of the word, not hearers only. And in verse 27, he talks about uh, true uh, and pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Not just to pray for orphans and widows, not just to to uh, give them a, a gospel literature, but to to help them and visit them. Visit them means that you're getting involved with their lives, being a doer of the word. So James is talking to people who are believers, who could explain faith well, who could talk about their faith, but there was a big gap in their practice. They were all hat and no cattle. Well, let's let's see if we can discern James' purpose from some some of the things he said. What does he want to produce in the readers? 
in his introduction in uh, chapter one, he talks about uh, being encouraged uh, through trials. Uh, my brother, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Uh, patience is, it has the word uh, meaning of endurance under pressure. And let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The word perfect there is a word that means mature. It speaks of completeness. It doesn't mean perfection in the narrow way that we might think of it. James wanted his readers to be mature and complete in their Christianity. And that is what he's trying to produce by encouraging them to be doers of the word and not hearers only. He talked in chapter 2 about those who are poor people in their congregation, but he says they're rich in faith. And that's what he wants for all of his readers. He wants them all to be rich in faith. So we're paying attention to some key words. And some of the words that pop out in this passage are the words save, like can faith save him? Now, you know that the word save has different meanings in the scriptures. And it basically means to deliver or to preserve from something. It doesn't always speak of eternal salvation. In fact, it only speaks 36% of the time in the New Testament of eternal salvation. Isn't that amazing? Only one-third of the time is the word saved used for eternal salvation. But it's used for in many other ways. I'm going to show you some of those in a while. We also run across this word dead, where he says in verse 17, uh, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, what does it mean that it's dead? Does it mean that it's non-existent? I'm going to tell you that the word dead never means non-existent in the scriptures. It always means some kind of separation or a loss of something. And in fact, in my black and white book out there, uh, I list seven different ways the word dead is used in the New Testament. And then he uses the word justified in a way we're not used to seeing it, different from Paul. He says in verse 21, 21, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And what we're going to see is that James is using it in a different way. He's talking about a different justification, that there's actually two justifications in the New Testament. There's a justification before God, and there's a justification before men. We'll get into that a little bit more. One of the most important observations to make is in the immediate context. And to look at how he has placed this passage, verses 14 through 26, in between what I call two bookends. Bookends. The, the fancy word in Bible study is called an inclusio. That means something that's included within the brackets of something else. So we have verses 14 through 26 sandwiched. There's another good word, sandwiched in between two other themes. What's the theme at the end of chapter two? He talks about uh, how you treat the poor and show preference and partiality and how you should show mercy towards them. And if you don't show mercy towards them, you you won't have mercy at the judgment. You will face a merciless judgment. Well, what judgment do Christians face? You know, there's only two judgments in the scriptures. Um, there's the great white throne judgment. But we know that that involves only unbelievers who are raised from the dead and cast into the lake of fire. There's another judgment that all Christians will face. The Bible calls that the judgment seat of Christ, where it says in Romans 14, 10, 2 Corinthians 9, 5, 10, we will all stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ. We give an account for our lives, the things that we have done in our bodies. So you and I are all going to give an account before God at the judgment seat of Christ. Who, what would he talk, be talking about to these who are 
not showing mercy to people in their congregation and might receive a merciless judgment. It would be a merciless judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. Well, let's go to the other end in chapter three and verse one. Here's what he says. He says something like this. I'm probably paraphrasing. He says, let not many of you desire to be teachers, knowing that teachers will incur a greater judgment. He's definitely talking to believers in uh, the congregation, and he's saying, don't be too eager to be a teacher because teachers are going to be called to, to account for their words and what they teach. You see, us teachers and preachers traffic in truth. We use a lot of words, and words make a difference. As we've seen in politics, words can make a difference. The little things that you say can greatly affect how people live their lives. And James says, don't hurry into being a teacher or preacher lest you incur a judgment or maybe you something you misspeak, something that you say incorrectly. I'm sure I'll have to give an account for a few things in, in my own career. But the point is, don't miss my point. You have the judgment seat of Christ here, and teachers aren't going to face the great white judgment. They're going to face the judgment seat of Christ also. And in between that, there's a section about how to be profitable and how to make your faith useful. And so useful for what? Profitable for what? I believe he has in mind profitable at the judgment seat of Christ. When he talks about being saved, he's talking about being delivered from a unfavorable judgment an unfavorable judgment at the judgment seat of Christ. Speaking our faith without doing our faith helps no one. So, what kind of faith is he talking about? Some people will look at verse 14, which says, uh, what does it profit, my brothers? There's the word profit. What gain is it? There's the Christians, my brothers. If someone says he has faith, he talks a big game about his faith, he doesn't say it's not true. He just says he has faith, but does not have works. Can faith save him? Now, I'm reading from the New King James Version. Some of you are reading from other translations, and it'll add a word before faith. For example, the NASB, a good translation generally, says, can that faith save him? The NIV says, can such faith save him? The NL New Living Testament says, the kind of faith, that kind of faith can't save anyone. But the King James, the New King James, and the New Revised Standard Translation just say, can faith save him? Which is actually the way the text reads in the original language. In the original language, there's no reason to put that or such or that kind of faith, which implies, and those in that interpretation, implies that it's just a, a say-so faith, not a real faith. In other words, somebody says he has faith, but can that kind of faith just a, he's talking big, but it, he doesn't really have faith. Well, it, it doesn't, uh, to be consistent with the use of the word faith throughout the passage, in fact, there's no need to put a word in front of that. It should be translated, can faith save him? In other words, can faith deliver him? He's not questioning their salvation, but be saved from what? Well, I believe saved from an unfavorable judgment at the judgment seat of Christ. And maybe some other things that he's talking about when he talks about saved. Because there's different uses for the word save in the New Testament, as we said. I promised to show you some. Here's some. It does mean eternal, save from eternal damnation 36% of the time. It's used as for being saved from illness in the Gospels and also in James chapter 5, verse five, uh, 15, where he says the prayer of faith will save the sick. Some translations say heal, but the word is from soteria or so, um, sozo to save. 
saving from the enemies is a very common usage of the word, uh, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, save from physical danger is a possibility. Uh, like when Paul told in Acts chapter 27, told the people, don't leave the ship. Uh, God has said, if you don't leave the ship, you'll be saved. Save from what? Save from drowning, save from death. He could be talking about physical danger in chapter 1 and verse 21, where he talks about them laying aside wickedness and filthiness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, literally save your lives. Some people take that as meaning physical death, um, or it has, could have another meaning, which is a wasted life, because Jesus used it in that sense. When he says in Matthew 16, he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Uh, actually, the word is the same word, life, translated life. And what I think it's better translated life, and some translations do in Matthew 16. There's a sense in which a person can can misuse their life, and it will be wasted, and they will actually lose their life. What God could have given to them in an abundant and rich and full life has been just lost. I keep in touch with a friend of mine from that young age when my mom used to babysit him almost every day. We were kind of like brothers and just did all kinds of stuff together. And then our teenage years, we did all kinds of mischief together. Uh, but he uh, he kind of went overboard, you know. It, um, he started smoking at a very young age of about 12, and then he started drinking, and he started drugs, and, and then he moved somewhere else. And I barely kept in touch with him, but he was always drunk or high when he called me. Right on through my seminary years and everything, you know, I, I became a Christian at the age of 19, so I went off in a different direction. Um, but but not my friend. He uh, he he remained uh, strongly addicted to all of his sensual pleasures. Well, recently I something happened and we couldn't establish contact for years. But this summer I finally got his phone number and I gave him a call, and uh, talked to him just as recently as uh, Christmas this year. He's on oxygen. He's had several heart attacks. He's in hospice care. Uh, he can barely has the breath to talk. He can barely read because his mind is so confused. Um, but he tells me, Charles, I'm going to quit smoking tomorrow. I'm going to quit smoking tomorrow. And he says, you told me about Christianity all those years, and I made fun of you, and I mocked you, and I gave you a hard time. But you know what? I look back now, and I have wasted my life. I've wasted my life. And really, he's had no life. Other than his drugs and pleasures. That's what it means to lose your life, lose your souls, or waste your life. I think James could have that in mind when he when he talks about uh, uh, taking the implanted word into our lives to save our lives in one twenty one and chapter five verse twenty may also have that meaning when he talks about turning a brother from his sin and saving his life. You might save him from a premature death, or just save him from a wasted life. They really go together, though. When you waste your life and spend it on things of selfish pleasure, you're probably doomed to have a premature death. But certainly what James has in mind here with the word save, I think in this context, is an unfavorable judgment at the judgment seat of Christ. And at what we call the Bema seat, when he says, what does it profit and can, can works, can faith save him? He's talking about what advantage is faith at the judgment seat of Christ, if we don't have works to go with it, because it is our works that will be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. 
And if we don't have works, we'll receive an unfavorable judgment. Doesn't mean that God will throw us into hell. Doesn't mean that he'll punish us. It probably means that we'll have a lot of regret. Like my friend just expressed to me on the phone, I've wasted my life. I'm so sorry. Doesn't mean that heaven won't be a happy experience, but there'll be at some point a realization of regret and loss. So some possible meanings for save in James chapter 214, uh, save from the great white throne. No, I don't take, take it that way. Uh, as many, many people do and why this passage has been misused because he's writing to believers, never questioning their salvation. The second uh, possibility is save from some deadly consequences of sin. That's a possibility that some people take, uh, save from a merciless judgment at the judgment seat of Christ or both of those things. Because if you waste your life, you're certainly going to have an unfavorable judgment at the judgment seat of Christ. So let's look at that word saved through that perspective. There are many different meanings for the word. It doesn't mean saved from eternal condemnation or saved from hell in this context because he's writing to believers. He's telling them how to make their faith profitable or useful. So let's get into his discussion now and dive in. Verse 15, he gives an example. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled. Here's a track and a dollar tip. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? You see somebody who has a great need. They're they're literally starving to death. They don't have the proper clothes in in a cold climate. And you just say, be blessed, be warm, be fed. I'm a believer, I want you to know that. But speaking our faith does not help anyone. There's no profit. That's his question. What profit is there? There's no profit. There's no profit to the people who have needs. There's no profit to me at the judgment seat of Christ. Speaking our faith without actions does not help anyone. So, What does dead mean? Well, he uses it in the next verse, verse 17. He says, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He uses the same phrasing in verse 20, but faith without works is dead. And the problem that many people see in this passage. It does not mean non-existent. And I would suggest that nowhere in the scripture does the word dead mean non-existence. It always means a separation from something or a loss of something. But it never means non-existent. Um, my wife and I went to a funeral just what yesterday or Friday. Went to a funeral. I've been to too many funerals this year. But in every one, we were not talking about somebody who never existed. In fact, the whole purpose of a funeral is to talk about somebody that did live, right? And what they did. And how they lived life. And share the memories of somebody who really does count. And they still exist. Not on this earth or in that body, but heaven. Hopefully not in hell, but they still exist. So the word dead here does not mean non-existent. It just is a figure of speech. We use it all the time. If I were to say to you, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. That means I don't have anything to do with you, separating myself from you. You mean nothing to me. If we say the car battery is dead, we're not saying the car battery doesn't exist. We're saying it's powerless, it's useless. It's a figure of speech. When James says faith without works is dead, he's talking about a faith that is useless. 
because it doesn't do anything. And so here it means useless, ineffective, or profitless. In verse 20, in fact, some verses translate that word dead. Some of you might have different translations. Translate that word dead as useless, right? In your translation. Not in the New King James, but it's in many of the ancient manuscripts. And some translations use the word useless in verse 20, not the word dead. And that's a good translation. Another way of understanding this word, example of how this word is used in the scriptures is by how it is used of Abraham in Romans chapter 4, verse 19, and also in Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about Abraham's body being as good as dead. You know that God promised Abraham children, and he believed God's promise. And Sarah laughed, Abraham believed, uh, but he had enough faith to believe God's promise, even though it says his body was as good as dead. What does that mean? Abraham wasn't physically dead. He wasn't non-existent. It simply means his body was useless at age 99 for having children. Unless God did a miracle, which he did. So the word is used even of Abraham uh, and his body, which was old and supposedly useless for having children. So dead means that your faith doesn't help people in need. It is useless. And it doesn't profit us, it doesn't help them in this life, and it doesn't profit us at the judgment seat of Christ. There's nothing that God would commend us for. Now, James brings up an imaginary objector, somebody who's going to say, but, 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 wait a minute. And that's a common thing in ancient literature is to bring up an objector, state an objection, and then answer it. Paul does that in Romans chapter 6, by the way, and you'll see it and other places in the scripture. And here's what the objector is saying. Uh, he, now, let me read it, and then we'll try to explain it, because it's kind of confusing. The objector says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Now, you notice I put the parenthesis there in the brackets, because that's the way the New King James has it, ending the quote. But many versions will have it going all the way through verse 19, which is what I think it should. The objector is actually speaking verses 18 and 19. So I put a quote in yellow there. Let me read it. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that there's one God and you do well. Literally, you do good. Even the demons believe and they tremble. Now, what is the objector saying here? Let me paraphrase it for you because it's hard to get your mind around. I think this is what he's saying. It's absurd to see a close connection between faith and works. You and demons both believe in one God, but have different responses. In other words, the objector is saying, you Christians believe that there's one God and you do well or you do good. You do what he wants you to do. The demons believe and they don't do good. They just tremble with fear. So what difference does faith make? You both believe in God. You both have different responses. You can't connect faith to works, is what the objector seems to be saying. Well, James is not going to let that fly. He answers them pretty quickly. But let's, in verse 20, but let's look at verse 19 for a minute, because this is another verse that's often misused. When he says, you believe there's one God, you do well, even the demons believe and tremble. And I used to do this myself. But when somebody says, um, oh, I believe in Jesus, you know, but they're not living the life. And, and you, then you tell them, or you they tell you, you've heard this. Oh, well, even the demons believe and they tremble. In other words, uh, your faith isn't good enough. It's a, it's a false faith. 
And by the way, in the scriptures in the New Testament, never is any adjective put in front of the word faith. There's no such thing as a false faith or an insincere faith or a, a, a non-genuine faith or an incorrect faith. It's always you either faith or no faith. But some people will use this verse and say, well, even demons believe. But wait a minute. It doesn't say demons believe in Jesus as Savior, does it? They believe what? They believe there's one God. Are they right? Yeah, they're right. Do they truly believe it? Yeah, they truly believe it. Not talking about a false faith. It's talking about demons who really believe there's one God. So we need to be careful how we use this verse and not make a strong theological point out of an objector that James doesn't agree with. That's the first point we want to make. And then uh, it's not about believing in monotheism. Uh, the issue is whether you believe in Jesus Christ or not. So, but, but what the demons, what he's talking about with the demons is that they believe in monotheism, but it doesn't say they believe in Jesus Christ. And besides that, demons can't be saved. Jesus didn't die for demons. So that can't apply to our salvation. Demons do have a real faith, but it's just in an unsaving object. Believing in one God does not save anybody. A lot of religions believe in one God, and the demons believe in one God. It doesn't save anybody. So the point is not to say that there is such a thing as a false faith. The point that we should look at as James Objector's point is that there is no connection between faith and works, but James is going to disagree. And he's going to use two examples, one of Abraham and the other of Rahab. And he's going to remind them of those stories. And he answers in verse 20, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that's the objector, that faith without works is dead? You really want to contend that faith, uh, or you really should see that faith without works is useless? There is a, there is a connection there, and there should be a connection. He uses Abraham and Rahab as an example of faith in action. And the first story of Abraham starts in verse 21 and goes to verse 24. And he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works? when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar, you see that faith was working together with his works. And by works, faith was made perfect. Faith was working together with his works. And because they were, his faith that he held inside was made perfect or mature or complete when he actually took action and obeyed God and took his son Isaac to be sacrificed. So Abraham, it says, was justified by works. What does that mean that he was justified by works? We'll cover that in, when we look at verse 23 and verse 24. But is, how was his made faith made perfect or complete? Uh, because he was obeying God. And that's what James is trying to tell them. He wants their faith to be perfect, complete. He wants them to be rich in faith. He wants, to, he wants them to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. So in verses 23 and 24, he says the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That is a quote from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. It's used three times in the New Testament to point to the fact that Abraham was justified before God through faith alone in God's coming Messiah, the blessing, the blessed seed. Galatians 3.16, that's how Galatians 3.16 interprets it. But Abraham was justified in Genesis 15, 6, and that's what James is reminding us. And he was called the friend of God, for you see 
that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. He's not making them mutually exclusive. He's saying you can be justified by works and you can be justified by faith alone. But faith alone is what justifies us before God. That's why he mentions Genesis 15, 6. But Abraham was justified by works. How? In what sense? Before men. How do we know that? Because they called him the friend of God. You see, when Abraham obeyed God and took Isaac, he didn't go off into some wilderness uh, retreat, some hiding secret place in, uh, where nobody would see what he's doing. He did it on Mount Moriah, which today is where the Temple Mount is, which was right next to the city of Jerusalem. Fully populated where Melchizedek was the high priest and king. That's where Abraham took his son to sacrifice him, and everybody saw it. And when they saw it, they said, this guy is obeying God. The guy that he's always talked about, uh, he, he must be a friend of God. And so his actions completed the faith that he talked about. He showed a maturity or brought to perfection the faith that, that he had talked about and told to other people. So there's a justification before men by our works, by what we do. Romans 4.2 tells us about these two different justifications. If you look closely, Romans 4.2 says, For if Abraham was justified by works, and he was, he has something to boast about before men, but not before God. And then he goes into a discussion about how to be justified before God. So Paul recognized that there was a justification before men and a justification before God. And James is talking about Justified by our works, our faith is vindicated in the eyes of men. They can see our faith. That's what so many people, I think, do not understand and why they think James is contradicting Paul when actually he's saying the same thing Paul said, but Paul just emphasized that you're justified before God by faith, where James is saying you're justified before men by your works and the things that you do. The second example he uses is Rahab. Likewise, Rahab, you remember the story of her and Joshua, how she, she hid the spies and she was a prostitute. Likewise, was not it Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? You wouldn't have known what Rahab believed except that she expressed her faith by hiding these Hebrews who worshiped Yahweh and she evidently had faith in him also and so aided them and helped them escape from the enemies and sent them on their way. And so her works justified her faith before men. She wasn't all talk, but actually able to do something. In verse 26, James brings the discussion to a close to this point. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Now again, when we read this, he's using the body as an example. Um, it would compare to our faith. And he's using the spirit uh, to compare to works. So faith is the body. The body exists. He's not questioning the existence of that. But if you take away the spirit, it's dead. The body is useless. And the spirit represents works. So in other words, if you take away from faith its works, that faith, though real and existent, is useless. Useless to others in meeting their needs and useless to us 
at the judgment seat of Christ where we must give an account. The body plus no spirit is dead or useless. Just like faith with no works is dead and useless. So faith, I'm sorry, death does not mean non-existence. It implies that there's a previous life and the conclusion from this discussion is that works makes faith useful. That's what James wants his readers to understand. That's what I hope we're grasping today is that your actions will make your faith useful to others and to you at the judgment seat of Christ. So how do you make your faith useful? Be a doer of the word. Not just a hearer, not just a tender at church, not just a, a, a tender at Bible study, not just a listener to Christian radio preachers or TV preachers. Don't just be hearers of the word. Let's do it. Let's put it into action. One thing we shouldn't do with this passage is use it to doubt our salvation. Because that's not what James is trying to do. Where so many people are trying to say, oh, faith without work is dead. And by the way, the people that are saying that, the Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, cultists, a lot of Roman Catholics, that's what they, that they go jump to this passage immediately. Because you're not, they say you're not saved by faith alone. You're saved by faith and faithfulness, what you do. Not what James is saying. They have a misunderstanding of what the word save means in that passage. So don't just speak your faith, but do your faith. Live it out. How do you live it out? By helping other people. We look around us and we see the needs that are around us. We see somebody in need and we go and move to meet that need. And we live in a society where we may not see many needs. In fact, you know, at, at Thanksgiving and Christmas, we're sitting sitting together with our family. I'll often ask somebody, because I'm feeling generous, I'm saying, I ask them, do you know anybody that's struggling right now, can't even buy enough food to eat? And we never can think of anybody like that. But yet I get emails every week from people all over the world saying, I don't know where my next meal is going to come from. COVID has told us we have to stay in our homes. It shut down our supply train. Uh, there's nothing in the markets. We'll get arrested or ticketed if we go outside and walk the streets. And, and uh, I'm worried about my next meal. Now, there's a need I can meet. So we've been sending money to some of these countries, and, and we appreciate your support that allows us to do that. Even this week, we've sent money out to our partners over there in ministry. That's a need that I see that I know that I can meet. We live in a pretty affluent society, so you may not see that many physical needs, but, you know, we've been – we're in a time here when many people are suffering the effects of uh, the pandemic, and, and maybe they just need a phone call. Maybe they need some reassurance, feeling separated from their loved ones in a nursing home, and uh, they just need somebody to talk to them, take them out to lunch, or do whatever they feel safe doing. But that's faith in action, not just talking about, I'm a Christian, but living it out by meeting the needs of others. And that's the kind of faith that saves us from being useless. That's the kind of profit that others will experience and we will see at the judgment seat of Christ. So what needs can you see where you are? In your neighborhood, in your clubs, in your sports teams, in your classrooms, in the church. What needs do you see where you can live out and act on your faith? Well, let's close our eyes and pray. We thank God for this passage today, and I trust that 
Spirit of God has helped you understand this. And Father, we do want to thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we place our faith in him. And that gives us a strong assurance of salvation. It's not based on what we do or we would never be sure. And yet today, probably there's some people in here struggling with the fact that they don't think they've done enough or been good enough. And they're doubting their salvation because they misunderstood this passage or listened to someone else or misunderstood other passages. And that's not what you want. You don't want your children to doubt. And so may they today say, I believe in Jesus Christ as the payment for my sins. He died on the cross to pay the price. He rose from the dead to give me life. I believe in his promise, and that's going to settle it for me from now on. May that be their prayer this morning. And may they have that assurance. And then all of us, may we live out that faith that we proclaim that we have in Jesus Christ by helping others and meeting the needs that we see around us. Father, there's so many needs. Don't make us blind. Don't let us be blind to them. Open our eyes to them, that we can live out our faith and be doers of the word. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.